A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan, your bookworm-worrying, shelf-obsessed nosy parker, and I'm so glad you've come to join me on my journey to the Kent coast, while I'll be rifling through the bookcase of the writer Charlie Connolly. Firstly, I'd like to tell you that my new book, The Sisterhood, A Love Letter to the Women Who Shaped Me, is out in March. It's my memoir about celebrating female friendship and growing up with five sisters, and how we fall somewhere between the Bennets and the Kardashians. Or were a bit like the Mitfords if Nancy Mitford was actually Fleabag. There's a very special exclusive offer for your book listeners. You can get 20% off if you pre-order from themargatebookshop.com and use the code BOOKED. The Margate Bookshop sells a beautiful curated collection of poetry, novels and art and design books, as well as memoirs like mine. You don't have to live in Margate, it's an online bookshop, although if you purchase my book and come to Margate for a visit, I promise I'll buy you an ice cream. So that's 20% off The Sisterhood, which will be published by Headline on March 7th. Pre-ordering is a brilliant way to support independent bookshops and this podcast. Thank you. Now to our fabulous guest. Charlie Connolly is an author, broadcaster and travel writer and the literary editor of The New European. He describes himself on Twitter as a talker, ghoster and mooncalf. He's the author of 15 books. His book, Attention All Shipping, was voted the second greatest audiobook of all time, beating Romeo and Juliet, which came third. His new book, Last Train to Hilversum, a heartfelt and nostalgic guide to radio, according to The Guardian, just came out. It's a warm, wise, kind celebration of radio and especially all the people who listen to it. It's a book that's primarily about shared experiences and coming together, an idea that seems more important than ever right now. Charlie is a very good friend of the podcast and of mine. He used to live down the road from me when we both lived in South London. Now that we both live in Kent, he lives down a slightly longer road from me. He's one of my favourite people to go to the pub with, so I had to move house. We talked about his gothic plagiarist uncle, James Joyce and romantic gestures, and Ronnie Barker's bathing beauties. I had such good intentions so of a filing system. Here on this, I mean, oh. this is quite an impressive shelf that lies before me. <laughs> That's we've got Dickens, we've got um, F. Scott Fitzgerald and James Joyce and Evelyn Wart and David Niven, um, which I think is a, it's quite a sort of warming, you know, jovial. <laughs> yes, it's a very serious shelf. We've got this. 
That's kind of that's right here. And then Douglas so. Adam. These are really lovely editions of Douglas Adams. Oh, and All the Devils Are Here. Yes. I was actually so. an early adopter of All the Devils Are Here because Granta published it in the very, very early 2000s, I think. And I remember reading a review of it and thinking it looked really interesting. So I bought it and I read it. And I think I might have lent it to someone and not got it back. because Ooh, my, my copy, Do you want a name and shame? Oh, I can't remember who it would have been, to be honest. But um, if, if they're listening now, you, you could probably <laughs> sell it on eBay for quite a lot of money because uh, Granta reissued it last year uh, and i in the intervening years have gone on to secondhand online sites to try and find a copy and they've been costing like a gazillion pounds so um i wish i kept kept hold of that one but it's, it's a terrific book and now that you know we're, we're here in our place in deal and um, where all the devils are here actually finishes up so there's an extra local angle on that for for me now you can tell in the, the final chapter i won't say what's in the final chapter but the final chapter is in one of the best pubs in deal which is the ship on middle street and you can even identify which actual seat he was sitting in when he wrote we, that we've been in the ship we have been, been in the ship. ship yeah many times it's in that back bar under the cholera poster which is I've... <laughs> <laughs> i know it well <laughs> but to answer your question about is is there a, is there a system um i have in, i have intentions of there being a system because when we moved here most of these bookshelves are on the point of collapse and and when the guys carried them in the removal guys uh i'd had plans of kind of scattering them around the place but uh, we're in a sort of corridor down to the uh, room where the washing machine's kept at, at the moment. And so when they brought them in, I said, I'll oh, just stick them down the corridor there. But when I looked down the corridor and saw the line of bookshelves, I thought, oh, hello. <laughs> I, could, library. I, I could have a library. I've never had a library in my life. There's only just teetering piles of books everywhere and the occasional bookcase. But now we've got one, two, three, four, five big Ikea Billy bookshelves. And so when I unpacked my books, I thought, here's the chance to organise them. Uh, and so they were vaguely organised once, but I kind of refer to them a, a lot from work, and I work in a different room. And so I usually what usually happens is I'll come in and I'll pull a load out that I need to work, and I'll carry them into the office, uh, which is the spare room. Uh, and then rather than coming be, coming back and putting them where I found them, I would just pile them up on the shelves in front of the other books. So this morning i thought i looked down this corridor and i thought this is disgraceful this is just a mess so i thought well I'll, I'll put them back in all the right places and i did try and put them back in all the right places before you came to make it look like i vaguely had respectable bookshelves but this the filing system did kind of go a bit awry so there is a vague thing i mean there's poetry a couple of poetry shelves there um a shelf of wood houses there's all, some football books together uh, my hv morton travel books are on the bottom shelf down there comedians and sort of popular culture books and uh, oh, uh books about the sea on that shelf it's actually more organized than i remember i'm, oh, I'm quite impressed with myself that's actually good. And then we're here with um excellent wife jude hello jude oh, hello. Say ex-wife, <laughs> excellent. also a friend of the podcast are these books is there any kind of separateness in terms of your are these very much both of your books all together or are any shelves more one of you than the other i would say those fiction books yes, at the end there definitely. are mainly jude's yeah which Although i read I as well i have to admit but your um system for filing occasionally if i'm going on to put a wash on and i catch a book i just put it on the shelf wherever it's the nearest shelf so sorry about that babe <laughs> <laughs> Ex-wife, <it> is. can <laughs> you remember <laughs> but we can edit that bit out Excellent. um the first books that you um lent to each other or gave to each other when you it was Ulysses, wasn't it? What a bloody yeah. hell! Yeah, <laughs> was right. it really? <laughs> yeah. Are you not just saying that to sound yeah. impressive? Well, well, we actually... Um, Jude lived in Dublin when, when we met, and so I was over in Dublin, and it happened to be um, Bloomsday that weekend, didn't it? Right. And I was kind of 
keen to impart a sort of intellectual heft that I don't actually possess <laughs> uh, to try and impress Jude. And so there was all the Bloomsday stuff going on around town, like men in bowler hats reciting passages from it uh, in the street and um, and uh, Sweeney's um, Chemist, where you buy your lemon soap and all that. And I said to Jude, we should buy each other a copy of Ulysses. And we, I think we actually bought each other a copy of Ulysses. Yeah. Um, neither of us has read it. No. <laughs> you got further than I did, didn't you? Yeah, um, not really, though. So, yeah, that would be the first. It wasn't a lending. It was a mutual gifting. It was a... In a con- incredibly pretentious A manner. symbol of a lovely time and a lovely day. Do, Do you, you still, still have that I've copy? Do you still think I've got that intellectual heft, Jude? Or did it convince yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have the, the Ulysses? Um, Are they the, the same edition? What is the plural of Ulysses? Ulysses? <laughs> Ulysses? Ulysses. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think... Is it here? Oh, is there one there? That's one of them. Yeah. There you go. So this is the um, the Penguin Classic. Yeah. Oh, it's got a bookmark in, so oh. you got to page 214. Was Are the you... John Betjeman poem thing that we had? Of... Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Again, I was trying to impart a kind of literary knowledge and heft. Okay, yeah. And, like, uh, and... No one got each other lace. So or... I, I was going through a real John Betjeman phase then. And um, I said to Jude, Jude did Jeff Betjeman, because Jude would, grew up, obviously, and was educated in Ireland, and Betjeman being a very English poet, I thought she might not have. Uh, and she went, oh, no, Betjeman, no, I don't know. And I said, oh, Miss J Hunter Dunn, Miss J Hunter Dunn. And Jude said... Burnish and burnish, all the shots on. There we go. And she finished the line. I thought, that's the girl for me. Uh, are you a, a borrower and a lender, typically? Are you neither? Do you, are uh, you particular about who you lend your books to? Please say I, yes. <laughs> I'm very particular about who I lend my books to, including probably about the half dozen I've just lent to you uh, <laughs> this morning. Um, yeah, I do. Well, most of the books I really like are pretty obscure and pretty niche, so there aren't really many people I can lend them to. But um, there are some that I will lend people to. One I'm always chuffed that I lent out and have always got back. Ooh is my copy of Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby, which is down here somewhere. Shall we see if we can find it? I'm really, really impressed Uh, by that. It is very difficult, I think, to kind of... And has there been any prompting ever to keep the... No, people have have returned it. So you see it's a bit dog-eared. And it's a a very old edition, in fact. So um, is that a first paperback? It is a first paperback, second impression. So I can't quite retire on the proceeds, I don't think. But there's no, you know, from the... From the movie? No, absolutely not. This is pre-movie. So this when was this published? I, mean, I presume it came out in hardback first. But this one's published 1993. So, yeah, long before the movie, I'd say, wasn't it? But, yeah, and funny enough, looking at the acknowledgements here, I, <laughs> a guy called Ian Priest copy-edited my new book. Um, and we chatted back with some forwards, found out we both really like football. And um, he's a Nottingham Forest supporter. I'm a Charlton Athletic supporter, so we had much to discuss. Uh, but I noticed in the very brief acknowledgements in the front of Fever Pitch, the name Ian Priest. And so I emailed him this week and said, oh, I was looking Hi. at Fever Pitch the other day. I said, are you the same Ian Priest in the acknowledgements of Fever Pitch? And he said he is the same oh, Ian wow. Priest so you, in the acknowledgements. You met him when... We haven't actually met face to face. We just kind of corresponded via via email, and he said what it was. He was a a very very junior office boy at the the publishers at the time, but he was the only one in the office. This being before football publishing really took off, he was the only one in the office that had ever been to a football match. (laughs) So they handed it to him to have a look for the football authenticity, apparently, which is a terrific thing. Obviously, you have done a lot of sports writing, and you are. Yeah, a sports fan. We did, had you started um, when Fever Pitch was written? Was that a book that at all had any kind of impact on you as someone who thought sports writing, that's something I could do? It was 
a shaft of light coming down from the heavens, basically, because um, I'd been involved with fanzines, football fanzines, from the, the sort of late 80s when they really burst forth. Um, but all the football books really back then seemed to be really bland, ghosted autobiographies or um, uh, histories of individual clubs written by uh, very old fans um, who were very obsessed with statistics. And Fever Pitch came along, and here was someone really, really eloquent, a really good writer, obviously very intelligent, who had done the same as me, had fallen in love with football as a boy, and everything to do with the, the rituals of going to a game, the, 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 the journey there on the bus, the standing in the same place, the character standing around you. I'm going to look at the travel shelf, Ooh, the which travel means shelf. doing a bit of a squatch. Oh, oh no, it's here. not worrying. Oh, no, there were some H.V. Mortons down there. So, yeah, that's it was one of my favourite shops. So there's, these are some, some travel books. You probably spot my favourite one because it's incredibly... Oh, new. wow. Uh, so we've got 50 Years of Europe, an album um, by Jan Morris. And this, this is kind of falling apart. It's kind of got sweaty. There's a kind of water. There's a, there's a tide mark inside it as well. This is Jan Morris is one of my, is probably my favourite travel writer. Uh, although Patrick Lee Firmer probably has a a, uh, a fair old claim too. But this book by Jan Morris, I absolutely loved. It's kind of, it's just, she was so well travelled, and these are just little little snippets that she hadn't put in other books. Just little anecdotes and memories of people and places. And it's just, you could dip into it anywhere. It's not, you can read it from start to finish or you can just pick it up and, and dive in. Do you have a favourite passage? Is there anywhere that you Ooh. went to because yeah, you Well, I kind of tend to try and write about places no one else goes because um, then people might be interested in what I have to say. Because, I mean, I've never been to Madrid, for example, because I think... If I go to Madrid, I'm not going to say anything about Madrid that no one's ever said before. And why would anyone want to know what I think about Madrid? But people might want to know about, say, the Faroe Islands. So I've been to the Faroe Islands and written about it more than once, actually. So um, it's more a case of trying to find interesting places that people would find rather than rather than me. And she did go to the Faroe Islands. And, um, of course, she did. She went everywhere. And the Faroe Islands are fantastic. They are sort of halfway between the Shetlands and Iceland. And there's only about 50,000 people who live there. And I've been a couple of times. And they are the most beautiful place in Europe. There's this incredible purple tint to the light. And they're these kind of hard, craggy rocks sticking out the, the North Atlantic. So much so that they pretty much have to import all their vegetables because they can't grow anything beyond a few, few old spuds. Uh, and so, she, yes, uh, Jan Morris went to the Faroe Islands as well and um, probably said something interesting about Oh, turn right to it. That's how often I turn... Yeah, talking rhymes in Klaxvik. And Klaxvik is the Faroe Islands' second city, uh, I would say. Um, Torshavn's the capital. Um, and he says, The most exhilarating moment I ever enjoyed in Europe happened on a high windy hillside in the Faroe Islands flying a kite. I was standing then all at sea in the North Atlantic, halfway between Denmark and Iceland, some 200 miles north of Scotland, and all around me were the symptoms of this situation. Foam-surfed cliffs, gusting winds, screeching seabirds, the smell of salt, the sting of spray, etc., etc. And I think That is a strong sentence, isn't it? It is. I mean, one thing I love about Jan Morris is she's one of those travel writers that can really, really capture the essence of a place just by a brief conversation with someone in the street or just a, a, a little incident she witnesses and she can amplify that and make you feel like you really, really know that place. And that's why I, I, I love her work and because I, I love Europe so much as well. And I don't have, and Jan Morris writes about Europe like nobody else. And uh, that is my favourite book. And as you can see, because the cover's falling off. She's in her 90s now, I think. Wow. Because she used to be James Morris um, and she was the Times correspondent when 
uh, Hillary climbed Everest and she, oh. she was as James then she uh, ran back down the hill and was the first one to get the news back so so scooped all the other journalists who, who'd been down the hill I've just called Everest a hill <laughs> <laughs> ran, ran, ran back down the mountain and, uh, and and it was her that broke the news um, and yeah she wrote she wrote a tremendous book about her, her sex change uh, called Conundrum because she had it in the early 70s which must have been incredibly I rare I, I don't have a copy of it this unfortunately is, this but. is ringing a bell I think I've read it there was a, maybe a piece with her in the Times last year. I'll try and find yeah, it because for the, the old show notes. She's just um, she's not long published a, a diary of of the last year. Just her, she lives in a remote corner of Wales now. She wrote a fantastic book about Wales as well, actually, um, because she's very very uh, strongly pro Wales and uh, Welsh heritage. And so she's written a book. Well, I haven't got it yet. I haven't read it, but um, she wrote a diary of of her year as an elderly person, basically, who doesn't really travel much anymore. You you're know. going to places, obviously, if you're, you know, say in Madrid, you know, loads of people go to Madrid every day who don't live there. But if you're mm. going to places that are lesser known or where they're not expecting guests, whether they're like, oh, we're really pleased someone's come to see us or, oh. Yeah, yeah mostly Stranger. people are pleased to see you. I mean, I went to the island of Atsira off the coast of Norway um, when I did a book where I went around all the shipping forecast areas. And they were amazed that, A, some one was coming to Atsira, and B, that someone was coming to Atsira who wasn't a bird watcher, because apparently there's, it's an incredible um, uh, range of, of seabirds settled on Atsira. And so they made me really welcome, actually. In fact, I got invited to the... Um, that happened to be on that weekend, because everything closed at the weekend, and I was there for the weekend, because that's the kind of planning I do. Uh, <laughs> the Atsira Football Club was having their annual knees up that weekend, so they invited me to that in the, in the old... Um, it was called the old schoolhouse. And I got talking to one of the players and he, I said to him, oh, you know, do, do you win much? He said, well, he said, we used to win all the time. He said, we used to win the league, the division we're in. He said, but the, the reason for that was the crossing from the Norwegian mainland to here is one of the roughest in northern Europe. So all the teams would roll off the ferry, like throwing up and incredibly ill and green in the face. Uh-huh. So they just, Syria would go out and thrash them. So then all the other teams in the league got together and complained to the league. And so Utsira have to now play all their games on the mainland. And he said, we don't win anything anymore. <laughs> um, I mean, the shipping forecast map is just full of places like that. So that was a terrific journey to do. Because um, I'm guessing that, you know, when you write, you're doing a lot of research and you're, you know, reading constantly as you go for reference. But in general, do you read when you're writing or do you find that the two things get crossed over too much? I try to do, if I'm doing a travel book, I try to do as much reading and research as possible before I can go because then I can feel I can go with a sense of purpose in that I know I'm going to look for and I'm going to ask about but then you can often get just as good stuff um, from turning up almost completely ignorant in the place and wandering around and hoping that the gods of serendipity do their business and they often do do their business surprisingly so you do kind of stumble across things as well as you know you're actually going in search of a person or a place or or some kind of story that you found every time i write a book and i think i've vaguely got an idea of what i want to write about and i start scratching the surface of the the subject and i go down rabbit hole after rabbit hole and come up with these incredible stories that well, i think are incredible anyway have you always been a reader and a person who loved stories were you enthusiastic when you were a kid yeah i think i was i was quite a, kind of a a lonely kid really um because um, there were no other kids really my age living around about where I lived, grew up in this kind of grey 
suburb between suburbs in South East London. Um, so I did kind of tend to lose myself in books. And I found in recent years, I've started, last couple of years in particular, I don't know if it's, my dad died two years ago, and I've started since then, I'm sure it, it's probably a coincidence, but I've started accumulating books that I had when I was a kid. And there's a few on here somewhere, actually. Um, uh, so they're not my original copies. Where are they? That, yeah, they're the ones I'm thinking of. So these are ones I've accumulated since I was a kid. Oh, wow, that's The Goalkeeper's Revenge. Oh, The Goalkeeper's that's Revenge great. is a great book. Um, it's a book of short stories by a guy called Bill Norton. Because that's about Heinemann New Windmills. I remember that from schools. But if you were doing a like a set text together as a class, I'm sure that was a publisher that it probably, often came yeah, out. Yeah, because we used to get... Uh, in 1961, this was written. This one came out. I'm going to describe the, the cover because it is fabulous. It's this, um, a symphony of oranges and black. I mean, I loved this book when I was a kid. It's, it, I'm, is I'm that the version says, that you read? I don't think it is. I think I had a paperback of this this is a hardback of Heinemann Heinemann hardback Uh, it says stories of a Lancashire childhood of football in the streets fishing fighting in school of growing up and looking for work and of characters such as Spit Nolan the champion trolley rider Sim Dalt the goalkeeper and Maggie Gregory the amazing reader but um, Spit Nolan is an incredible story um, about a trolley race and Spit Nolan was the, the the star kid and made the best trolley and all like that and uh, it's this is an incredibly sad story um, and yeah, it says uh, an account of the race here. He says, "Then I saw the heavy rear wheel jog over a pothole and strike Spitz front wheel, sending him in a swerve across the roads. Suddenly, then from nowhere, a sharabang came speeding around the wide bend. Spit was straight in its path. Nothing could avoid the collision." I gave a cry of fear as I saw the heavy, solid tyre of the front wheel hit the trolley. Spit was flung up and his back hit the radiator. Then the driver stopped dead. I got there first. Spit was lying on the macadam road on his side. His face was white and dusty and coming out between his lips and trickling down his chin was a rivulet of fresh red blood. Scattered all about him were yellow rose petals. Not my fault, I heard the driver shouting. I didn't have a chance. He came straight at me. And it's basically the death of this kid. Did he die? He dies. Oh, yeah. my God. Uh, and it's it's kind of hard. Did they, of... skipping ahead, did they declare him the winner? I think they did, yes. Yeah. Oh but my! Was that was it? Was it like meant to be a cautionary tale about well, I think, in your cards? I, I think these are, might be stories that happened to Bill Norton in his youth because it was published in the first published in the early sixties, I think, nineteen sixty one, and they get I get the impression these are the kind of twenties and thirties. These stories, no one else seems to remember these. Gordon Boschel's Captain Cobweb Adventures. And I love these. Oh, these were my favourite books when I was a covers, kid. Because you got um, Captain Captain Cobweb's, Cobweb's Adventurers and, and, and Captain Cobweb's Cowboys. So on and the it's front these... of that, I'm going to do... Is that an elephant or a very stylish... It's like a donkey-elephant hybrid. It could well be. I, I must read these again, actually. Here we go. Let's, let's read the back of this. Captain Cobweb's Cowboys. The basic premise was that these two twin boys, uh, David and Toby Green, whenever they get bored, they both had a little pimple on the pad of their forefingers, and they would rub this little pimple, and their mysterious Uncle Septimus would appear from nowhere... <laughs> And um, take them off to uh, the latest adventure. So I devoured them as a kid. And like I said, I'm starting to accumulate them. They're the ones I remember most reading when I was a kid, definitely. Although there is uh, there is another one I've got from my childhood that I've replaced. It's not actually mine. Um, and I think you've asked people before about a book they'd read that they shouldn't have done. Excellent. I'll, I'll, let's go and find it. Uh, I did, because I've replaced the copy. Here it is. Ronnie Barker's Book of Bathing <laughs> Beauties. <laughs> 
<laughs> and on the cover, there's like a cartoon of a strongman in a Victorian-style swimsuit with Ronnie Barker's head pasted onto it, and some um, sort, of, sort of scantily clad Victorian women in in huge underwear. There's natural. There are nipples and a bum. Yes, there. That's just the front. Wait till you get between the covers. <laughs> I love this sign that they've written on the front, mainly yeah. for gentlemen. <laughs> Uh, whoop, there you go. There's a keyhole on the back that we're looking through at a, a lady at her toilet. Uh, and this bit was £1.20, so you published had to in pay more for 1974. You. And I think this was my earliest and probably best bit of sex education. It, so it's, was this a book? Was it in your parents' house? My parents had it. My parents had that, and they had this, there was a sequel, which was Ronnie Barker's Book of Boudoir Beauties, <laughs> which was um, lots of scantily clad Victorian women from postcards and things. Ooh, rudeness on the uh, beach. Yeah, <laughs> underwater bathing. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, look, the, look at that. There's just frolicking naked women. So how old were you when you I was probably about seven or eight, you know. And did you, was it known that this was not a book for children? I didn't exactly flaunt the fact I was reading it in front of my parents. But, did um, you thought, but were you kind of waiting to get a chance to, to have a look or did you pick it up one day and I think, woof, bloody hell. Well, I, I used to just scan my parents. But I spent hours on, in front of my parents' bookshelves and, in fact, the, the other book that kind of formed me was uh, it was called Horrible Murder, which was um, Victorian police um, magazines and newspapers and accounts of grisly murders and accidents and things like that. So, so it... it so there was that, and Ronnie Barker's Book of Bathing Beauties and Ronnie Barker's Book of Boudoir Beauties. Um, but being seven or eight, the only rude thing I was aware of was one's bottom. <laughs> so all these, these kind of um, ones of women with nothing on facing front were completely lost on me whatsoever because <laughs> you couldn't see their bottom. Um, so, yeah, that could explain a great deal. We'll be back to Charlie shortly, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book I loved so much that the cover price doesn't really cover the value of what's contained within it. 
This week, my steal of the week is This Hostel Life by Malatu Uche Akuri, which was published in May 2018 by the Independent Publishing Network. This book features an essay and three short stories and a further essay by Dr. Liam Thornton. Two of the stories are based on the real stories of the author's experience of poverty and the direct provision system in Ireland, and one is about a Nigerian woman living in a remote village a century ago. Akuri's voice is singular. It's shockingly pure and clear, and these stories make you laugh and break your heart. The detail is spare yet rich, and she paints such a vivid picture of a world that many of us recognise and yet barely know. I came across this book by accident when I was in the brilliant Books Upstairs bookshop in Dublin. I think Akuri is such a massive talent. Her work should be read widely, and I really, really hope a novel is coming. So that's This Hostel Life by Milatu Uche Akuri, and that's out now. Now, back to Charlie. Can oh, we, yes, let's talk about Margaret, Margaret Rutherford. Rutherford. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I have to, my, 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 Margaret Rutherford is my hero. I, oh, man alive. Margaret Rutherford is the greatest English person who ever lived. I'm, I will fight anyone who disagrees. That's an excellent cover um, photo, isn't it? Could you describe it? Is, it's it? a terrible photo, isn't it? Because it's not, it's not, I would say it's not a flattering picture. It's not. It's an intro, this is a book, uh, Margaret Rutherford selects her favourite work by Edward Lear, this one. It's called How, How Pleasant to Know Mr. Lear. And That's Margaret. Rutherford says, how pleasant to know Mr. Lear. I mean, with the best will in the world. Uh, that's not a title that is aged well. That's kind of terrible. It doesn't really tell us anything about what the book is. <laughs> I think it was Hilaire Belloc once wrote a book called Essays on Various Topics. <laughs> I think it was Belloc. Can you imagine pitching that now? Like going to a to a commissioning meeting at a publisher. What, what, and what, what are the various topics, oh, Hilaire Belloc? I've not decided yet. Yes, various ones. Yes, well, you'll see when I submit the manuscript. But yeah, they're, they're, yeah, it's not a great title. Margaret Rutherford says, "How pleasant to know Mr. Lear." But I have oh, one of my pride and joys: Margaret Rutherford's autobiography, which is called "An Autobiography." Uh, by Margaret Rutherford, and I very um, Ron Seal titles, Margaret yeah. Rutherford. But it's um, it's very rare actually. It's out, been out of print for years, and I did pay quite a lot of money for this. Uh, for me, anyway, um, it was about eighty quid, I think, online a few Ooh. years ago, and that's probably probably the most I've spent on a book, I think. Um, and it's it's, I mean, it's poor old Margaret Rutherford. Her her father murdered her grandfather. Um, Oh my goodness! He was released from an asylum, and his father, her grandfather, um, took went, took him away for a few days to kind of get to know him again. And he bashed his head in with a chamber pot in a boarding house in Matlock, Derbyshire. And then poor Margaret Rutherford, her mother hung herself when she was three, so she lived her whole life in fear of that there was some kind of mental illness um, legacy in her. So she was she she. She lived her whole life kind of worrying about that. But she doesn't mention any of that at all in her autobiography. Um, she just says her mother died when she was young and her father died when she was young as well. Although her father was actually in an asylum for the rest of his life. But it's so, I mean, as a piece of literature, it's not a great autobiography other than it was written by Margaret Rutherford. It's quite a good start, as I remember. Do you think it was ghosted? I think it might have been. I don't know. There's, no one gets a credit, I don't think. Um... But yeah, the first line is, I was a grave child. My face was oval like a bantam egg, and I had green eyes round as pennies. My hair was auburn-tinged and fine as a floss, and I wrinkled my nose like a rabbit, a mannerism I still have today. 
I was also a lonely child. I mean, I mean that, that makes is, you want um, to read on, doesn't Dodie it? Dodie Smith could have written that. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I mean, she played these amazing eccentrics in, in, in films and stuff, but the, do you know what the best thing about this book is? When I got it, I opened it up, and look what's inside. Oh, so that's not... It's a letter that Margaret Rutherford wrote. Oh, my goodness me. Can you... On say... her personalised notepaper with Margaret Rutherford on the top. A date stamp, like a library stamp, 4th of May 1950. Did you know that was coming? I didn't, no. It, was, wow. it fell out the book when I opened it. Um, and it's uh, in purple ink, this huge florid hand, um, addressed purple, the Globe right, Theatre, West 1, May the 3rd, 1950. Uh, it's only a little note. But, dear Dr Lane, I write for your help on the advice of my cousin Miss Nicholson, whom you greatly helped with a... Uh, something prescription for rheumatism it's incredible handwriting isn't it um, two members of our company and she's writing from the theatre uh, here are suffering with acute sciatica may we have your don't know what that says and if possible a Book bottle booth? Mm, maybe Look. and if possible a bottle of some remedy yours sincerely Margaret Rutherford look at that signature Margaret oh. Rutherford purple fountain pen um, so yeah that this it's one of the books I'd save in a fire, uh, as long as it had that letter in it as well. So, yeah, Margaret Rutherford is my absolute hero. And Quite. I'm a bit obsessed with Margaret Rutherford. Tempted to start writing in purple now. Well, more handwriting and more purple. It's just struck me. Do you think there's a link between me being obsessed with Margaret Rutherford and Ronnie Barker's book of bathing beauties? I don't know. <laughs> as a child, who knows? But, yes, Mark, that's one of what, my favourite um, books. Where did your fascination with um, Margaret Rutherford come from? I don't know. Um, something that you grew just, up with. Something that, yeah. Something that well, yeah. I mean, I love the Ealing films, and she was in Passport to Pimlico. And one of the reasons I love the Ealing films so much is that my dad was in a load of them, believe it or not, because he went to school next to um, Ealing Studios. He went to Ealing Grammar School. And he went to Ealing Grammar School between the years 1949 and 1955, which was the heyday of the Ealing films. And so whenever they needed kids running around uh, in the background... They whistled up my dad and his mates and they'd go and run around in the background of loads of films and he was in most of them, I think, oh, wow. that were made actually in the studio. And uh, all he said was they got, at the end of the day, they got paid in cream cakes and buns. They'd be <laughs> led into a room and there'd be a table heaving with cream cakes and buns. Now, I've got all the films on DVD and I've not been able to actually pin down my dad in the background, but I know he was in loads of them. Um, and so, yeah, maybe that's where my Margaret Rutherford thing came from. I've seen her in... Passport to Pimlico, and then. So um, did your dad meet her? Did he know her? He never said. He never really talked about. I mean, he wouldn't have known who they were then. I mean, he was just a, just a kid himself. Um, Much more interested in the buns. It's a great claim to fame, and I've got actually it's incredible a book here. Another claim to fame. My dad's first cousin. Here's a book called The Girl with the Glasses, uh, the show business autobiography of Maggie Streder. And look at that bit. With a forward by Sir Cliff Richard OBE. That cover is magnificent. Would it be unkind to say it's not unlike uh, Dame Edna Everidge? <laughs> Indeed. Well, yeah, that was her gimmick, you see. Uh, Maggie Streder was my dad's first cousin, and she was pretty much an invisible presence in some of the greatest bits of British show business history. You know, um, Ernie, the fastest milkman in the West. Mm. You know, the backing singer that goes, Ernie, Maggie Stredder. 
Oh wow! My dad's cousin. She was in um, Morecambe and Wise. She was she worked with all sorts: Bing Crosby, uh, Dusty Springfield. She did TV specials with Dusty Springfield. Um, she, she was, was a singer, singer, basically. Yeah, yeah. And she had a trio called the Ladybirds, and she was the girl with the glasses because uh, the story goes that they tried to stop her wearing her glasses on stage, and she refused. She said, "I'm proud of wearing my glasses," and so she became known as the girl with the glasses. And Eric Morecambe always said to her like hey it's the girl with the glasses i have to ask you about this book because the title is pure kind of what i'm looking for looking for these shells you have a book called too naked for the nazis yeah not one of ronnie barker's series of saucy (laughs) postcards unfortunately it's 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 a biography of wilson keppel and betty who i also am a bit obsessed with um i mean people might remember wilson keppel and betty made an entire career out of doing a pretty much a six-minute routine uh, from starting the music halls, and then they did it on the, the Royal Variety performances in the 50s and 60s, uh, dressed as Egyptians, doing a kind of sand dance. And, and uh, Wilson and Keppel were these two incredibly skinny men who would have like the tea towel on their head with a band around it and these kind of um, tunic things and enormous walrus moustaches and there were several Bettys in Wilson Keppel and Betty uh, and this is this book came out he actually got nominated I think for that award of um, the, the most ridiculous title or whatever the worst oh, title I, I have a lot of weird it's showbiz it's striking it's too good it's no um, what the essays on a variety of subjects yeah. <laughs> essays on various topics <laughs> So I love this shelf as well because you've got some, it sort of starts with, oh my God, what a complete Ashling. Um, <laughs> big fan of But then there's lots of quite, these books are quite creepy. There's some um, heavy looking. Um, oh, St. Michael's, 65 Great Tales of the Supernatural, <laughs> a Marks and Spencer's special. Um, Known for their love of horror, Marks and Spencer's. <laughs> horror that you can mm. get while you're getting your biscuits. Because I've, I've started getting together a little, little shelf full of um, sort of gothic literature there um so i've got like the melmoth the wanderer um the inspiration for sarah perry's um, melmoth ah and i can see the Essex <coughs> serpent the Essex up, serpent up the is road. on the same same shelf and there's Dra- dracula is a terrific book you know i, I yeah we all see the films with uh, bella lugosi and christopher lee and all that but you go back to the original dracula it's fantastic i mean it rattles along it's it's an incredible book and it's written in kind of the diary extracts and letters. It's oh. not a conventional novel, so there's many voices, and and that it, it's incredible achievement. I've never Dracula. read Dracula. I must. I think with all the mythology that sprung up about the films and stuff, we forget just how good the original original book was. And uh, I've got some uh, Isaac Dinnison Gothic tales there, and the Oxford Book of Gothic Tales, and the Shilling Shockers. And I'll tell you why. I've got a couple of the Shilling Shockers, stories of terror, terror from the Gothic Blue Books, and the Gothic Blue Books were in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, very cheap very sensational books of horror stories. And one of my ancestors used to write these, and his name was Isaac Crookenden, and he's got a book in uh, a story in this book, The Shilling Shockers, called The Vindictive Monk or The Fatal Ring. And Isaac Crookenden is my great, 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 great uncle. Uh, And I found him by chance when I was doing some family history research, and I got really excited. And so I started looking into Isaac Crookenden, and... (laughs) It turns out the first description I saw of Isaac Crookenden was from a, 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 um, a sort of compendium of Gothic fiction that described him as one of the greatest plagiarists of Gothic fiction, <laughs> notorious, one of the notorious plagiarists of Gothic fiction. And it turned out that what he used to do, he would get something like The Monk by Matthew Lewis or Anne Radcliffe's uh, Gothic novels, and he would rewrite them, publish them cheaply, and give it 
give it his own little spin, his own he's little a monk. What was that one called? Because uh, it was the, the something vin- monk. That was the vindictive it? monk. Yeah, vindictive it, monk. he ripped off Matthew Lewis's Vindict uh, the Monk, which is one of the classic early Gothic novels. And there were quite a few people that would do these uh, these blue books, as they called them, and he was one of them. And they all had their own little little theme that they liked uh, to, to get into it. And and great 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 uncle Isaac's was incest. <laughs> so he would he would rewrite things like the monk and Anne Radcliffe stories, just with a little touch of incest. Um, and and but they they, they were really incest. really successful. Uh, and in fact, one of his stories is in this highly respectable. The Oxford Book of Gothic Tales. Yeah, um, one of his is in here, so I'm really proud of that because uh, I'm proud of it. Like I ever knew him, he died in 1809, but it's got like Thomas Hardy, Robert Louis Stevenson. You know, he might have been your uncle and your dad, and you know, your like. Yeah, I can go back through my own books now to see if there's any kind of theme uh, running through that. But yeah, um, the the vindictive monk or the fatal ring, 1802, Isaac Crookenden, in the same collection as. People like Thomas Hardy, Robert Louis Stevenson, H.P. Lovecraft, William Faulkner. Another great thing about my relationship with Isaac Crookenden, it means through him, I'm related to Sir Laurence Olivier. (laughs) He was Sir Laurence Olivier's great, great, great grandfather, which I worked out makes me and Cousin Larry, as I call him now, (laughs) uh, fourth cousin three times removed. So practically brothers. But now these books that he wrote were very, very poor quality (laughs) in every sense but particularly in the way they were produced, because they were produced on cheap paper. They were paperbacks, uh, and so they're really rare. But for my birthday this year, Jude managed to find one and got it for me online and probably paid quite a bit of money for it. Which, uh, but should we go and have a look yeah. at it? Because I keep that it in a box. Incredible present. And here it's in this fancy box with which I was presenting. And look at this. This is its very, very delicate. Can you see if you can oh, describe what we're so looking at it's here? It's within a sort of a cardboard sheet, and it's, gosh, it's so, not in a pejorative sense, but it, it looks like a pamphlet, and that's how sort of... Yeah, it pretty much, I mean, I think there's about, Scotch. the last six pages are missing, I think, but it's incredibly it's delicate. romantic tales, the, the Revengeful Turk, um, or, or the, the Mystic, Mystic Cavern, the Distressed Nun, or Sufferings, <laughs> Athelia di Brindoli, or Florence, and the Vindictive Monk, or fatal Rick. So is this Which keeps the cropping up. So that was obviously his greatest hit. Uh, yeah, well, it's one of his books. This was published in, I think this was 1802, this one. So they'd be a series of short, short stories, basically. Oh, Whichever Gothic novels were popular and selling well at the time, he'd and just nick that, them. Um, and it's got it's lovely engraving. Yeah. And it's been hand-tinted. But these things are so rare. They, they really are unusual. Gosh, and if you're a fan of incest <laughs> that you'd probably be um be be, be um you'd like screwing your eyes up really these. tight to read i mean it's really small print as well sexy and, and, families but this you know it's amazing that any of them survived so let's go and look at um at your wisdoms oh there are loads of books in here actually yeah, we're right. in um we're in charlie's office where he writes and we're in front of my and here's the, and when was that picture taken that picture was taken uh two years ago uh, no, I wouldn't normally have a picture of myself on display. Kind of that was sent to me that one um, because I I wrote a book about W. G. Grace um, about three years ago, and it was shortlisted for the MCC and Cricket Society Book of the Year. And when you're shortlisted, you get invited to the Beano at Lords in the long room where it's uh, the winners announced. And I didn't win, and uh, I didn't deserve to, quite frankly. Oh, but, well, I, think, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, nothing it, about cricket, but I think you definitely did. <laughs> um, 
But then I got a tap on the shoulder um, during the meal after a few glasses of wine. And um, the fellow who organised it said, you're all right to say a few words about your book, aren't you? And I was like, in my head, a big no appeared. <laughs> but then I had to say, yeah, yeah, fine, yeah. So I had to get up. But that's the long room at Lords, which is like the holy grail of cricket. It's the centre of everything. Um, you know, WG Grace would have walked through it out to bat and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, I got to speak in the long room at Lords at the MCC lectern. Um, with the portrait of W.G. Gray, he's kind of overlooking me. In fact, I think I'm giving it a bit of a side eye there in in, in the picture because I could feel his steely gaze on the back of my neck. So, and so I have this collection of, of Wisden Cricketers' Almanacs. Um, which, so this goes back, it starts at 1970? It starts at 1970, and I'll tell you why. I mean, the Wisden Cricketers' Almanac, for people who don't know, is an annual, and it's, they call it the Cricket Bible. It's a little yellow hardback that contains... Uh, all the scores and all the uh, statistics and some feature articles uh, written by cricket writers and it comes out every year in this yellow hardback form. I got my first one was this one in 1983 which was my 13th birthday and my mum and dad gave me that because I first started getting obsessed with cricket when I was 13. So the Wisden Almanac 1983 was my first one and then it became an annual birthday present because my birthday's in August Look, and so it's the end like of the cricket season and that's well Ooh. used that one. I started getting these every year as a birthday present for my parents and then when I when I became an adult I started getting them for myself and then I started going back from 1983 and I thought well it started in 1864 uh, and the older ones cost a gazillion pounds to, to source anyway so I thought what I'll do I'll go back to 1970 which is the year I was born so my wisdom collection is an intimation of my own mortality because when you see them all lined up on the shelves like that that is my entire life in measured out in wisdoms and yeah, so that's my wisdom collection. And oh, if I can just pull this one out. Wisdom 2011. Oh, I'm in it. Oh, oh. Uh, unfortunately, not as one of the five cricketers of the year. But um, the editor at the time. Can you was, not cross the name out? Well, I could try, but I'll settle for having my name in it for. The editor, Shill Berry, who at the time um, emailed me and he, he'd read my book about the shipping forecast and really liked it. And he emailed me out of the blue through my website and said, I think you mentioned in the book that you're interested in cricket. Would you be interested in writing for the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac? <gasps> That was my reaction. <laughs> in fact, a, a, a big gasp. And I got, I said, oh, goodness me, yes, I'd love to. And I'm in there somewhere. Where am I? Uh, it was following the ashes from afar. There I am. Because you're writing about 17 books, as far as I can tell. So there's the book about the radio, which is either right about to come out or it's just come out at the time of recording. Further information in the intro or outro. And you're writing a book about swimming the channel. Uh, I'm writing a book about the channel, um, a sort of travel book about the English channel. Because Sorry, I think I was, I was just listening to um, a different podcast, uh, Rule of Three, which is very, very good. And Victoria Wood, and they were talking about the Swimming the Channel, Victoria Wood sketch. So I oh, think in my head yeah, I was adding amazing. that. Yeah. Swimming the... These shelves are a bit... Everything's shoved on there, really. Um, so there's stuff left over from the radio book that I wrote, and there's stuff for the channel book. So it's probably the most obscure set of bookshelves content you will ever see um what's i'm just oh picking a book up off the floor and having trouble getting to the floor can we get out of this is uh bella balthurst the lighthouse stevenson's this just this book looks beautiful what is this it's a beautiful but it's a history of um robert louis stevenson's family pretty much built every lighthouse around scotland and um that's Bella Barthas' book about the family and the lighthouses. Because uh, 
I don't know why that's there because it's nothing to do with the English Channel or the radio. But yeah, uh, it's a really good book actually because you think of Robert Louis Stevenson as you know the, the kidnapped guy in Treasure Island. Yeah, it was his family and he was the kind of black sheep of the family really because everyone was expected to go into the lighthouse game. <laughs> uh, but Robert Louis Stevenson said, no, I'm going to go into the writing game because there's riches there, as we know as writers. Uh, and yeah, so he was he was kind nice of the black sheep, but it's his legacy that seems to be the famous one, whereas I think the rest of the Stevensons have a better legacy, a more valuable legacy, because they're going to save countless lives at sea by sticking towers on rocks and lighting fires on top of them and what have you. Uh, I've got two copies, look at this. Why have I got two copies? Oh! I must really like this book. <laughs> two different editions. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about this beautiful thing. Oh. It's not a book, but I think a tapestry. Am I pick it up? Yes. Uh, is, there, is this the shipping forecast map? That is the shipping forecast map, and it was given to me this Christmas by my mum, who embroidered the shipping forecast map herself. Oh my uh, goodness! And put it in a frame for me for Christmas. It must have oh, taken them months. Beautiful. Absolutely what a, months. That's the loveliest surprise. Was it a surprise? Or it was a complete surprise. Mum yeah. Charlie, yeah. bloody thing I'm embroidering for you. My voice went very high when I pulled that out the the wrapping. Yeah, she said that the straight lines were the most difficult part, and which is a little bit like life. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's an incredible thing. I mean. It, it, you're kind of drawn to the areas yeah, themselves, yeah, but, but just those patterns love, in the land. I love the detail and the compass in the corner, and her, that she's the embroidering of the, the list of observation stations. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Goodness knows how. Channel vessel, melon head. As a writer, I'm really, really interested in, in terms of your career, do you feel free to sort of correct me or say, no, this isn't right at all, and I disagree, but it sounds like the the shipping forecast book is the one that people absolutely sort of you know connect with and like talked about you know with the um writing for wisdom that's because mm. the writer was such a fan of of that book do you feel so is that the book that you enjoyed writing the most do you think that's sort of why people connected with it or do you wish that other the other book got a bit more of a, a look in of people's uh, i never enjoy writing any book um <laughs> i'll tell you what I, I really like uh doing the research I really like meeting the people. I like going to the places, but the actual sitting down and writing the book, yeah, I find horrible. I find it really torturous. I'd do anything to put off actually writing, which when you've got to come up with 90,000 words is a bit of an issue. But yeah, that's the book that has done the best by far, by far. I mean, it's, I mean that came out in 2004 and I still get emails from people who've just read it and um, you know, they, they, they used to be a merchant seaman and they brought back memories of that for them. And people who live in places like Milton Keynes and have never been anywhere near the sea and they still love the shipping forecast and, and they really enjoyed the book as well. So I don't, I don't know why that book took off the way it did, Imagine but it really thing. did. Never been to the sea, no plans to go to the sea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, for some reason that book struck a chord. With, I think it was the subject matter that struck the chord with people more than anything else. But it's, it really endures. They've just, um, they've just produced another edition of it, the latest reprint, oh, which wow. I've, they, they've stopped actually listing how many all the reprints in, inside the book. So it, it, it's, it's a good view so, now. Am I right in thinking it's the best-selling audiobook of all time? No. Uh, it was voted the second-best audiobook of all time. So that was close. Um, yeah, it was a, there was a poll that Waterstones and The Guardian did, uh, well, it's quite a few years ago now, uh, and it came second uh, in the audiobook, which is read by Alex Jennings, the actor Alex Jennings, who... Um, I think he played Prince Charles in The Queen, amongst other things. So sounds a lot like me. Um, 
And yeah, it, it finished second behind the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy oh, as, as the best audio book. I think, knowing you as I do, I dare say you might have felt a bit odd if it was the other way around. Yes, I would have done absolutely. I mean, Douglas Adams. Was, I mean, we've talked about the Captain Cobweb's works. Well, I, I progressed from them to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as I grew up, and Douglas Adams is, is still one of my um, great heroes of writing. I think him and P.G. Woodhouse are uh, two of the, the greatest writers we've ever produced. And so, yeah, I had no no problem with finishing second to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Third place in the greatest audiobook of all time was Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. So I am officially better than Shakespeare. <laughs> better than the Bard. That's me. Well, that is definitely a great cover quote for a book. <laughs> I, I did want to ask you, as, um, you know, as a younger man or now, if you ever sort of go to kind of readings or you know meetings of authors that you've sort of enjoyed or have struck a chord with you i was speaking at an event in london um, organized by the oldie magazine they used to do these literary lunches and um i was on one day with um michael winner and kate Ady and me were the three speakers and michael winner slagged me and kate Ady off in his sunday times restaurant column which was amazing which one of my well, career uh, as a result of meeting you at that yeah. dinner yeah, he said we went on for far too long and we didn't uh, but all I'll say is that of the three speakers that day, only one of them were there people asleep while he was speaking. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I spoke at that. and um, Needless <clears> to say, <throat> you had the last laugh. Well, I, I, I kind of did, almost literally, because I, I, in my shipping forecast book, Attention All Shipping, I write about Rockall. And uh, I didn't actually get to go to Rockall, but Rockall is an interesting story. And Britain's claim on it is really dodgy. Uh, for various reasons and I finished up this this little talk thing at the oldie lunch by saying um and uh so Britain's claim is really dodgy and you know I might go and claim it myself I'll just say it out there and announce myself that I'm the the king of Rockall and uh, everyone went ha 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 and clapped and sat down and actually one of my favorite moments ever is that Barry Cryer was sitting in the seat next to me or to my right uh, and as I sat down, Barry Cryer was thumping me on the back going, brilliant, well done, brilliant. And I thought, well, that's one of those moments where you could die right now and it'll be just fine. And then the next day I had a text message from Prince Michael of Sealand. And Prince Michael of Sealand is a, an independent state on an old military platform eight miles off the coast of Essex. And Prince Michael, I, I went there for, for that book and that, that was a very, very funny story. Uh, and Prince Michael and I are still pals and we still kind of uh, see each other now and again. And he sent me a text message saying, hi, Charlie, I've got my boat up in Aberdeen. Maybe I can give you a lift to Rockall. Ha ha. And I thought, what the hell is he talking about? And I, I replied, what? <laughs> and he just replied, Daily Mail, page seven. And I went out and bought a copy to Daily Mail, which is... Uh, quite embarrassing experience all around I wrapped it in a copy of Razzle to make it less less, less embarrassing and um, when I turned to page seven there's a three quarters of a page story saying attention all shipping I'm going to be king of Rockall uh, with a picture of me that I lifted from my website and superimposed a cartoon crown onto my head <laughs> and and someone had, had a Daily Mail guy had been at this talk and he'd made 800 words out of this about how I was going to sail a boat out there and I was going to battle the British government for control of Rockall and I was going to take 20 friends. And I've never had 20 friends in total in my life, let alone 20 that would go out to Rockall and take it over. So anyway, so so for a couple of, for about three days, I was a media fugitive. It was like I was getting all these 
phone calls and stuff, and it just started to die down. And Ben Fogel at the time was doing a book about the islands around Britain, and he'd gone to Rockall, and suddenly he appears in a telegraph saying, no, no, I hear this guy, Charlie Connolly, is going to battle Rockall. Well, I'm going to battle him uh, because I want Rockall for myself. And this huge thing blew up of Ben Fogel challenging me to a fight. And he's bigger than me. He would have absolutely battered me. So I'm glad we didn't actually get to have, have a fight have over nimble. it. To the best of my knowledge, Ben Fogel has not claimed Rockall. Uh, has he? Uh, so what are you doing this afternoon? It was an old kayak out the back there. <laughs> Huge thanks to Charlie. Do follow him on social media. He's at Charlie Connolly on Twitter and at Chaz Connolly on Instagram. Last Train to Hildersum is out now and I promise it's an absolute treat. It's informative, it's uplifting and it will spark joy. I'm Daisy Buchanan. Thank you so much for joining me on my journey of page poking and reader ribbing. You can find me on social media at NotRollerGirl, on Instagram at the Daisy Bee. Say hello, suggest some guests and watch out for shelfies. Visit our show page, acars.com slash booked for more information about our guests and a list of the books they've talked about. If you have any other queries about the podcast, you can email us at ybooked at gmail.com. That's the letter Y, booked at gmail.com. Your booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Please do subscribe, rate us and leave a review. It's great to hear what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. I'll be back in your ears next time for more spine-cracking secrets. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.